Welcome again to the God's Word, Our Great Heritage podcast. The last two weeks, we've considered the first half of Mark chapter 10. In this episode, we'll be looking at the second half. We'll listen to Jesus teach about true greatness, and we'll meet a roadside beggar. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, you came to this earth to serve us. Help us by your Spirit to imitate you by serving one another. We are beggars all, Lord. Open our eyes to the truths of your word. Amen. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. We've said in this study that We are following Jesus on his way to the cross. We are nearing the end, and that cross has come into view. In our Lutheran Elementary School, we have our core values displayed on posters around the building. One of those core values is grit. Do you want to know what grit looks like? Well, then look at Jesus on his way up to Jerusalem. He faces agony beyond our imagination, and yet, resolutely, he marches forward. The disciples were astonished. They could sense something big was about to happen. But others in their company were afraid. They knew powerful people were plotting to kill Jesus. The NIV translators left out a word. Jesus says, look, or if you like the King James Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Evidently, the NIV translators thought it an unnecessary word, so they just dropped it. But whenever we see it, it is a stop sign. It is saying, stop and consider this carefully. Here is something truly amazing. The Savior will be mocked and spit on by the very people he has come to save. And he will remain silent. The Almighty is going to be beaten and flogged when he could send his tormentors down to hell with just a word. The Lord of life will be killed and in a most cruel way, and he will go willingly to that death. And who is it who will do all this to him? His church, the chief priests, and the Bible teachers. How will it all end? In his victory. Three days later, he will rise. Three times now in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has explained what will happen to him. This is the third and most detailed. And it serves as an outline for the rest of Mark's Gospel. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Are you shocked to hear James and John immediately after Jesus has told them what is about to happen to him make such a self-centered request? Do you know what's even more shocking, though? Jesus' patience with them. And when we consider how self-centered many of our own prayers, our requests to Jesus have been, we must marvel at his patience with us as well. James and John want positions of honor in the kingdom. Jesus patiently teaches them that his kingdom will come through suffering. Are they able to bear it? He he compares his suffering to a baptism. It will wash over him. The mockery, the spit, the flogging, even the death. Are they willing to share in that? They're so confident, like a a child who doesn't really know what they are saying. They, They say, oh yes, we will share in your cup of suffering, Jesus. Jesus tells them they would in fact drink that cup. James, not long after Jesus' ascension, was executed by sword by the order of Herod. And John was exiled as an old man to a remote island. Though they will share in his sufferings, Jesus says that the place at his right and his left is not his to give. Some understand Jesus to be saying that there are places of honor in heaven, including these positions at his right and at his left. But these were not for him to hand out while he was on this earth. And that is certainly a possible understanding. But I think Jesus is referring to something else. His kingdom will come through his death as our substitute. It is in his death that our sin is atoned for, and heaven is open to us. And several times Jesus referred to that sacrifice on the cross as his greatest glory. Could it be that Jesus is here referring to the fact that when he carries out that work on the cross, there will be two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Those are the two places. Could that be what Jesus is thinking of here? Following Jesus means one day we will share in his glory. That is what James and John were focusing on, that heavenly glory, thinking it was perhaps coming on this earth. But following Jesus means first a cross on this earth. And that is what Jesus wants them to think about now. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Were you surprised by the reaction of the other ten? Did you think at least one of them would have said, Come on, guys, James, John, what are you thinking? Jesus just talked about his approaching death, and you can only think about your own self-advancement? Not, hey, what about us? We wanted those positions of honor. No, you probably weren't surprised, because you and I know our own sinful hearts. We know just how deep in us is this desire to be something important, to be first, even to the point we sometimes tear down others to climb over top them. In response to their squabbling, Jesus teaches them what true greatness is. He uses two terms. The first is servant. God has given you abilities, talents, so that you can serve, so that you can work for the benefit of others. That's what a servant does. The other term he uses is slave. A slave is someone whose time and talents belong to someone else. Jesus is saying, strive to do what others need to have done for them. Let pagan rulers make it their ambition to be able to tell others what to do for them. Make it your ambition to serve and to even see yourself as the property of those who need your help. That's what Jesus himself did. Our king did not come down to this earth to be served by us, to live in some palace with servants to meet his every need. No, he came to serve us by paying our ransom. He paid a price to free us from bondage. Bondage to what? The punishment our sins deserved. Bondage to Satan's power and control. And it was not a cheap price he paid. It was his own life. Not with gold or silver, Luther writes, but with his holy, precious blood and innocent suffering and death, he redeemed us. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. No claims of greatness on the part of this blind roadside beggar. He has nothing, no way to earn a living, no relatives or friends of sufficient means to take care of him. His only option is to sit along this dusty road and beg. He offers nothing to suggest he deserves Jesus' attention. He has only a plea. Have mercy. Apparently, many in the crowd thought it such a pathetic and desperate plea. They told him to shut up, stop being such a nuisance. Daniel Deutschlander in his commentary points out that this crowd is made up of religious pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, 
to celebrate the mercy God has shown to them in freeing them from slavery. And yet, they lack any compassion for this man's desperate plight. They rejoice in God's mercy towards them, but have no mercy for this man. Do we sometimes fall into that same trap? On Sundays, we gather to celebrate God's mercy on us and his forgiveness, but then we so often lack compassion for those in need or are reluctant to forgive others. They told this man to be quiet, but the beggar will not stop calling out for Jesus because though he is physically blind, he spiritually sees who Jesus is and calls him by his royal name, Son of David. The beggar knows what so few have yet recognized, that this is his promised Savior and King. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, more literally, my rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The man is so excited, in such a hurry to see Jesus, that he tosses his cloak aside. He calls Jesus, my teacher. Notice how Jesus, even though he knows what this man wants, I mean, everyone there knew what this man wanted. Jesus gives him the honor of expressing his request. Jesus knows everything we need as well. Still, he gives us the amazing privilege of coming to him with our requests in prayer. Jesus tells the man, your faith has healed you. Don't misunderstand it. It wasn't the strength of Bartimaeus' faith that brought healing. It was the strength of Jesus' words. But faith prompted Bartimaeus to reach out to Jesus for help. And faith received what Jesus offered. Why does Jesus here, and in many other places, praise faith when Jesus and his word is what created faith in the first place? Well, maybe it's just this. Jesus is encouraging us to cling tightly in faith to the promises he has made, the promises of his word. It's been reported that Martin Luther's last words were, We are beggars all. No claims of greatness. Nothing we can offer to suggest that we deserve anything good from our Lord. We simply pray, Have mercy. Have mercy on us, our Savior King. And he does. He has mercy on us. He saves us. He atones, covers over our sins. And he fills our lives with good gifts besides. Bartimaeus' faith was not a a short-lived thing. He followed Jesus along the road, the road that led to Jerusalem and to the cross. And so he is the perfect expression of our status before God. We are beggars all, needy dependent on the mercy of our God. And with faith, worked through the word, we follow on the way to the cross. Next week, chapter 11, and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.